0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello, folks. Uh, Welcome to Season 2 of uh, Wisdom of Friends. And I'm really excited to be introducing you to a very dear friend of mine. Her name is Louis Pinberti. Louis is a mediator, scrum master, facilitator, and a writer. She's also been a programmer, interface designer, and project manager for software development teams. Underlying all of Louis' activities is her passionate curiosity about people. Over 15 years of experience as a mediator, she's observed a wide range of human behavior and worked with people of different nationalities, cultures, countries of origin, religions, and ethnicities. She writes and speaks on the patterns she sees in what people do and how they can change their behavior to resolve disputes, avoid conflict, and work joyously and effectively with each other. Some topics she talks and writes on are how to survive and thrive on self-organizing teams, personal barriers to resolution, and six signs that you're being unwisely generous with your clients and what to do about it. Friends, this is a fascinating conversation where we uh, cover a wide range of topics all the way from race relations to uh, resolving dispute and the skills needed to be a masterful mediator. I hope you enjoy this. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only Luis Benbardi. So good evening, uh, Luis. Uh, welcome to another episode of uh, Wisdom of Friends show. I'm really excited that you took some time to be on this call and let me start off by saying how we met. Uh, it was at the Kirkland Eclectic Toastmasters Club, and we first got introduced through uh, Randy Stimson, who was, the, who was the vice president of education uh, at this club. And uh, when I heard you speak about mediation and resolving conflict and leadership, the talk that you gave at that club meeting... I knew back then that uh, you're one of the guests that we definitely should have on the show because your insights would definitely uh, make a big difference for our audience. So again, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to be on this uh, call.
1: Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad that my uh, my talk was uh, I made an impression on you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so the one of the one of the ways that we start off our show, uh, Luis, is that. Uh, we ask our guests a very simple question, and that is, what's your favorite code or philosophy that you live by, and how have you applied it to your life?
1: Oh, boy, uh, just one. Well, I, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is that I constantly strive to improve myself. I have always, all my life, been examining myself Uh, how do I act? Do I act with integrity? Do I know how to be a good friend to people? Do I understand my feelings and the impulses that drive me? So I'm always trying to understand myself better to be able to act act better in accord with my own values. Uh, That's part of my being passionately curious about people, which includes me. But I'm also curious about people in general, which is one of the things that's led me to be at various times, like I'm a mediator now, I'm working on becoming a scrum master, I did usability design and user testing in earlier parts of my life, I've been a writer. So I'm fantastically curious about people and about myself and continuously improving myself. That has got to be, that's the first thing that came to mind when you asked
0: that Mm -hmm. question. No, that's great. So, uh, what I'm hearing you say is, one of the things that uh, you find insanely curious is learning about people, and that's been the trajectory of your life, it seems like. And now, being a mediator, a scrum master, and a facilitator, <clears throat> you know, that's been uh, one of the traits that has helped you in your uh, profession. And I want to get into some of those activities uh, uh, later on in the podcast. But one thing that I'm curious about, Louis, is Uh, What did your parents do, and uh, how did that shape your life?
1: Well, my father was an engineer and an inventor. He started three businesses, um, and my father was an intelligent, investigative, highly driven man, and in a lot of ways, I'm like him and that I am driven. And also, another thing about me is that besides being interested in people, I also have a logical and technical mind. So I was a computer programmer for for many years and I I loved it. I taught computer science, I uh, was a project manager, I was a programmer. So I did all that too. Uh, My mother was a scientist uh, up until, well, up until my sister and I were little. And from her, I also get that same sort of scientific and inquisitive mind. She uh, has also been an artist, and so I have artistic interests as well, not in the finer visual arts, more in the uh, in the writing arts, shall we say.
0: Mm. Wow. So, so moving on from, like, programmer and then uh, project manager and uh, the artistic background... I'm curious as to, uh, how did that journey unfold for you? Like, you know, one of the questions that we normally get from our audiences is, you know, how do we identify our passion? How do you, uh, how do we identify, you know, a profession that's kind of a calling, right? And it seems like, uh, you were fortunate to, uh, find the things that you love. So what would your suggestion be? Is that something that came naturally to you? How did you go about getting into programming or becoming a project manager or a scrum master?
1: Okay, good question. So programming, Uh, that was obvious from the moment I wrote my first little program because when I was in, uh, I just finished my first year of college and I went back to visit my old high school. A friend of mine was working on a computer. I didn't know what it was then. I said, Matthew, what are you doing? He stood up and said, sit down, type this. Now,
0: ty-
1: <laughs> now type run. It was a basic program for those mm. of you. Um, and for those of your audience who will understand that, he said, now type this. And now type run. And it sits, did something different. The output was different. And what's more, I could tell why it was different based on the the third line of code that I had typed in. And I kind of went, Oh, and from that moment I was hooked. I, I borrowed that computer for the summer. I went through the whole of the manual in about three weeks. And then I just for grins programmed the screen to display the characters of the Greek alphabet. I don't know why, but it was just something to do. I went back to, for my sophomore year of college, I changed my major to computer science and, uh, Uh, I never looked back. I I, I love, love, love programming. And that was in that instant, that's how I figured it out. So I don't know how to tell people how to to duplicate that kind of experience, except just be willing to try things. If it's low risk, give something a try. If you don't like it, you'll know. If you do, you'll know. If you're not sure, you can try some more. Um, As for being a mediator, my mom remembers that when I was in fourth grade, I came back from an afternoon of playing on the the school playground and say that I had broken up like three or four fights that afternoon. So I think mediation in a way has come naturally to me. I'd always been interested in it, but then it was after nine 11 when I was living in Baltimore Mm -hmm. and working actually pretty close to DC uh, where one of the planes uh, struck the Pentagon. And, um, And so I thought there has to be some way I can increase the peace in the world. And uh, since I was moving back to Seattle anyway, I took a mediation training at the University of Washington and then started mediating through the Dispute Resolution Center of King County. And I've been doing that ever since for over 15 years now. And uh,
0: I love it. I
1: absolutely do.
0: That is so great. So what I'm hearing you say is a couple of things. One is... A willingness to try different things and see uh, what catches your fancy and that's how you found your love for programming and as far as mediation is concerned somewhere along the childhood you did uh, there was uh, there was an incident where you were a natural mediator like trying to like resolve conflict and fights in school and it's something that uh, really uh, was lying dormant as a skill until uh, the incident of 9-11 where you really wanted to bring peace to the world and you kind of came back to Washington and took a course in dispute uh, resolution and that's how that became your profession. Is that, is that an accurate uh, summary of uh, what you just shared?
1: Yeah, although I, I didn't know I was interested in helping people get along better. And it wasn't until I was moving back here that I had the opportunity to actually take a class and start a training and start actually uh, start actually mediating.
0: So I'm curious and that's such a great uh, segue into uh understanding mediation. I know you know that's definitely one of the biggest challenges that we face today in the in our world that we live in. It's uh, it's the conflicting belief systems and conflicting political viewpoints and you know when both parties are really stubborn about their own individual point of view uh you know it sometimes conflict does arise and then it really uh requires in my view patience and certain skill set to uh bring together those conflicting parties to come to a, a amicable solution so so my question to you is. <clears throat> Uh, when you did that course at university of washington uh, what was what were some of the highlights from that program that you learned or you the skills that you acquired that helped you uh, in this uh, uh, profession of mediation
1: well that's a good question the 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 training it was a 40 hour training and it was on the the basic mechanics of 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 how you run a mediation And the thing that I remember most was asking one of the professors, what are the skills necessary for a good mediator? And she said, patience, which you just mentioned. Patience is a big one because people don't always know what they want. They don't know how to express themselves very well. They may take forever, what seems like forever to explain something. And it takes a while to figure out what somebody really wants. One of the things I've noticed in mediation that I've developed as a, is what I see, one of my philosophies of mediation is that everybody has a need, multiple needs. Mm.
0: But when I'm
1: working in a mediation with somebody, they have a need that isn't getting met otherwise they wouldn't be in the conflict and they wouldn't be in the mediation generally that's not always true some people sometimes people don't realize that they have in fact met their need already but even with the most unsympathetic clients and i have worked with some i have found a hard time had a hard time being sympathetic with there is something that they need that is basic to all human beings. It may vary some across culture, like say a collectivist culture, like the Japanese culture versus an individualistic one, like what the American culture generally is. But people have some basic needs for security, for connection, for love, for um, dignity, for honor, those kinds of things. And even the most unsympathetic of my clients has something that they need and what i try to do as a mediator is to find out what that is and see if i can help them get it because once somebody has that thing that they need sometimes the dispute just kind of goes away
0: Mm. that's so interesting uh so i'm I'm, and as you can tell i'm probably this brings up more questions so is there like a case study or give us can you give us like an example of uh of a situation where you were able to apply the skill set? Because what I'm curious about is oftentimes, you know, it's so challenging when you have two conflicting parties to even understand what the needs are, right, of each party's involved because what they are sharing at the surface le- level may not be what their underlying need is. So how do you go about even identifying what their true need is and how do you listen to them to really dig that out? Is there a case study? Could you share an example that you might've worked on in the past uh, without obviously giving away the identity of your clients or anything of that sort?
1: Yeah, sure. So there are a couple come to mind. One is, and this is hard, it's hard to describe what to look for, except sometimes people, people's faces look congruent with their voices and what they're saying. And sometimes you can probably see it's maybe a movement of their eyes or they're frowning or you can tell they're thinking a lot that they're not saying. And there was this one woman I worked with. She was angry at her landlady because the she was not convinced that the lock on the front door of her apartment, it was a garden apartment, I believe in a house. She was not convinced that that lock was secure enough. And she was so Unhappy about it, an adamant about it, and I remember thinking back on what she had said so far in the mediation, and what she talked about didn't explain why that was such a big deal to her. And she had that look; I could tell where she was thinking a whole bunch of stuff, and she wasn't saying it. So I called a second caucus, a caucus being a private conversation with one of the parties. I usually only need a caucus once, but I and I always caucus with both parties, of course, to keep things fair. But I caucused with this woman a second time, and I said to her, I may be wrong, but I get the impression there's something you need that you're not mentioning. I said, you do not have to tell me. You certainly don't have to tell your landlady the other party. But in my experience as a mediator, unless you know what it is you need, you'll never be happy with the uh, with the outcome Because you'll never get what you truly need. Mm. And I was all ready to say, and again, you don't have to tell me, just think about it and I'll talk to the other party privately. And then she opened up and she said that in a previous place she'd lived in, a man had broken in and raped her. Mm. So suddenly, the importance of the lock on the front door made total sense. It wasn't just the lock on the front door. It was her security. Mm. That's what mattered. And I, I said, oh, my God, I am so sorry. I did not mean to bring up such a, such a horrible memory. She said, no, no, it's okay. You're right. And I said, and you certainly do not have to tell your landlady. I'm not trying to push you here. She ended up telling her landlady, and her landlady was a little taken aback. But then the landlady understood why the lock was important. Now, of course, any landlord should or landlady should have a good lock on a door. But once the tenant explained why it was so important to her, that's when I think the landlady really realized, that well, yeah, maybe that lock isn't good enough, even for someone without this, this, um, this horrible event in their past. So that's one thing I do is I watch for whether people seem to be saying everything that they want to say, and I will give them an opportunity to say it if they want and then there was another case I had where I was mediating between these two men, uh, I don't know, early 60s maybe. Mm. the matter that they came to me for was really simple. I think it was it was maybe five thousand dollars, and they they just seemed to be seething with anger underneath it. I had no idea what was going on and I said to him, finally I said to them, "What the heck? I'd probably put it more you know more professionally <laughs> than that." But what I found out was see, these these two men, uh, one was the founder slash director of a a nonprofit organization. It had been in existence for, I think, something like 20, 25 years. The other man was a former board member.
0: Mm. And
1: I found out that there was a conflict that led to a lawsuit that led to the board member becoming the former board member. And these two men who I'd known each other for I don't know how long were still dealing with massive amounts of resentment and anger, hurt and disappointment. They didn't want to talk about that, though. So I was left with talking about the matter that they'd come to me for was each of the men had been a guarantor for a relative of theirs in a business relationship that those two relatives had entered into. And that had gone wrong for a bunch of reasons. What I found was, I said to the founder of the nonprofit, I said, you know, the other man, in in paying the whole deposit amount for this business arrangement, when he couldn't get a hold of you because you were in Europe, Hmm. in a way, you know, that other man showed a lot of concern for your relative by paying the, this money because he didn't want the business arrangement to fall through before you could come back from Europe. Mm. And by actually the, the relatives were the, the men's sons. So talking about how the other man had had concern for the founder's son. Generally, of course, these kinds of familiar relationships are very important to people. It depends on the culture. They're more or less, but, by pointing out concern for someone the man cared about, I was able to get him to rethink what the other man had done and to to see caring in the other man's actions. And that was the thing that, that changed it around. When I got the two men back in the room, one of them said to the other, look, let's just go our separate ways. The deal went bad you don't pay me anything, I don't pay you anything and the other man reached out his hand and said done, they shook hands and that was the end of it uh, it was just finding a way to let the other party look sympathetic and caring as opposed to grasping or greedy or just out to to uh, screw with people that's a, that's a fairly colloquial way of putting it, but out, out to damage somebody, let me put it that way that the person, the other man was not out to damage him, but he really tried to help.
0: Wow. Now, that's so great. And I think uh, one of the underlying themes here, what I'm hearing is oftentimes the conflict or the dispute is uh, a result of something that's even unrelated to the issue at hand. It's something from the past that the individual brings to the table. And, and I think what one of the skilled uh, mediator like you is able to do is to really connect the dots and say and find that dignity for them and find that sympathetic way of looking at it and uh, offer the other point of view which may not have been initially uh, even visible to the other person right it's like the conflict is uh, so out there in their face that they can't even see the point of view from the other point uh, other person's uh, lens so bringing that uh, perspective a different perspective so that there is a sense of uh, caring and dignity, and uh, a different point of view seems to be uh, what is uh, helping resolve some of these conflicts. Is that is that like an accurate uh, summary of what we just uh, shared? Yeah,
1: yeah. That people always have people almost always have needs that they're not aware of. Yeah. It, yeah.
0: Now that's so great. Now this is, and this is something that requires some mastery of skill sets, and you know, it, it doesn't come naturally to all of them. I mean, a lot of people uh, cannot do this kind of, uh, uh, you know, mediation. So one of the things that I am curious about is, what do you think are some of the skill set required for a good mediator when a conflict is uh, it needs to be resolved? Are uh, there specific traits that uh, we talked about a little bit of patience? But are there any other specific skills that one can develop in their uh, as they are growing as a leader, as an employee, as a businessman that would enable the conflict to be resolved before it kind of gets out of hand?
1: Ah, good question. So there are a couple things I would say. Uh, one is to try to get awareness, especially of cultural differences. And another is to become a good observer. One thing I've noticed, so for instance, I did a mediation recently between uh, the director of a, a nonprofit, not the same one that I mentioned before, but between the director of a nonprofit and the development director one of the things I noticed was that they had conversational style differences. And I imagine you noticed this. I'm guessing from your voice that you were born somewhere in the Indian subcontinent and you came here to the United States. You probably had ample opportunities to observe different ways of communicating.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. So the, one, the, the, the director of this nonprofit was, as she described herself, a Jewish woman from the East Coast. And the development director was an African American man from the Seattle area, and I noticed that the the, dire- the founder, sorry, the director. I noticed that the director. She spoke to understand what she was trying to say. If there was a silence, also she wanted to fill it. The African American man, the development director, he thought in order to figure out what to say. And he would think for a while, you know, like several seconds, which doesn't sound like long when you say it, but when you're sitting there waiting for somebody to say something, it feels like a very long time indeed. At some point, when one of them had finished speaking, I said, excuse me a moment, I'd like to point out something, that you two have very different conversational styles. And I described to them what I've just described to you. And I said, what I see happening is that you, I said to the man, When she speaks, you think she's interrupting you and she's not interested. But what she's doing is using conversation as a way of thinking about things and and keep the conversation going. And I said, and I think what you, I said to the director, I don't think what you don't realize is when he's being silent, that doesn't mean he doesn't have anything to say. So I suggested that they be aware of these conversational differences And in fact, the mediation went better after that because he didn't feel like she was interrupting him and she didn't feel like he was ignoring her. And they had not noticed this. Now, this is the kind of thing that I as a mediator and also because I have lived in different parts of the U.S. and I married into an American culture that's quite different from my own. I'm a white woman. I married into an African-American community. And I have learned to notice these conversational differences because they are an essential survival skill. So I can notice them in people. So that's one thing that makes a good mediator is to be able to observe people. And even if you don't know that much about their conversational style, if somebody's speaking and another person starts speaking and the person one stops and kind of frowns, you can bet they consider that an interruption. Mm. Um, So you need to be able to watch for the expressions on the faces, the set of the face, the sound of the voice, and even the way people hold their bodies. Uh, And another thing I would suggest to anybody who wants to be a mediator is to get as much cross-cultural experience as you can. Not everybody is going to marry into a community other than their own, or travel halfway around the world from the Indian subcontinent to the United States, for example. (laughs) But, you know, there are always movies you can watch, books you can read. In Seattle, you can like go to the um the farmers market that's in columbia city wednesday afternoons um, that's in the like the most diverse zip code in the united states 98118 and last time i was there i could walk around i could see people from uh, southeast asia people from somalia and ethiopia people from the us white people from the us uh, african americans just it was like a, almost like a little un there and just be around people and observe how they talk, how they interact.
0: That is such a mm-hmm. great point, Luis. I think uh, what you're suggesting really is uh, uh, really acquiring the observational skills, if you will, and really strengthening those. Because, you know, when we look at our globe today, uh, you know, it's uh, it's slowly turning into a melting pot, right? I mean, you have all these cultural uh, migration happening all around the globe uh, there is a liberalization of economies that's happened across many of the east asian nations including india and china so people are traveling around the globe so it's 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 a skill that no longer is a luxury but it's something that we all need to develop to be able to uh really not just resolve conflict but to get along with people from all around the globe isn't that isn't that true
1: It it is true. It is true. And one of the most beneficial things I did for myself uh, about a year ago was the Dispute Resolution Center of King County held a a seminar, a training on uh, developing cultural awareness of Islam. And I knew very little about Islam, or I thought I knew some, but I didn't know nearly as much as I did. And it happened the very next day. I got a Muslim client And so when I was talking to him in private, because I was trying to understand there was an odd kind of dynamic, but when I was caucusing with him in private, I said to him, I just took this training last night. And as I understand Islam, and tell me if I'm wrong, Islam very much values resolving problems between the people involved. That in general, in Islamic societies, and I say in general, going to the courts is a last resort. And you don't do that until you've tried to talk it out. Or depending on where you are, there was a woman from Somalia who talked about that. She said, and where she's from, they will try to talk. If they can't, then their elders will try to talk. And then they go to their clan chiefs. And then they go up yet one more level, and only then do they go to the courts. Mm. And I said to the man, I said, Is it, does it bother you that this other man, this this white American man, has taken you to court? And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, we don't do this where I'm from. We will talk to each other. We will try to resolve it ourselves. And by understanding that, I gained some credibility in his sight. And also, I understood better how to work with him. And then, it was funny, at the ver- and they ended up resolving their dispute. And at the end, I always shake the party's hands. And I was halfway through shaking this hand when I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I forgot to ask whether you shake hands with women. And I think he had felt a little awkward about it because he hadn't been in the U.S. very long, but just my showing that I was aware that that was an issue, he broke into a smile and he said, "No, it's okay. God knows my heart, so it's okay. Don't worry about it." Wow. And I, I, yeah, I know. And I've had that happen a couple more times. Like one time, a client of mine, I said, "Oh, are you Muslim?" Yeah. I said, "Oh my!" I said, "Oh my goodness, it's Ramadan, isn't it?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "Oh, are you are you like tired and everything?" He says, "Yeah." I'm exhausted. So that you know there are ways when you can get yourself to be trained in these kinds of cultural awarenesses and uh, you know in a lot of parts of the US saying that you're trying to understand Islam and Muslims is not very popular these days. And I'm sure you know that. <laughs> I mean anybody knows that in the United States nowadays but at the same time if we don't get to understand each other it's as you said you can't avoid it now the way the world has become so connected. And I, I don't think that to wax political for a while, I, I don't like the way so many people in the United States are demonizing Muslims or demonizing illegal aliens, as they call it, you know, people who come into the country other than legal channels. I understand some of the reasons why people do it, but I, I just, A, I don't think it's right, and, and B, it's just... Well, aside from the larger moral question, I don't think it's right, and I don't think in a practical sense it's helpful to demonize other people.
0: Yeah, and uh, one of the things that I think it's uh, taught, there's a course, uh, there's actually a great book uh, by the name of, I think it's titled, uh, Getting to Yes. I think it's mm-hmm. a course that's being taught at Harvard Business School, and It's one of the books that teaches you about negotiation and really, uh, you know, it's no longer like a win-lose situation or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's more about creating a win-win situation. And I think going with a mindset to uh, have that both parties can meet their needs, as you said early on, I think that's such an important prerequisite to resolving any conflict uh, in my view. Do you agree?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I read that book years ago. It's it's a great book. They, they have a number of other ones, and um, absolutely, I. When I find it, my parties are at odds with each other, then I try to find some way that they can agree, something they can agree on, that even if it's just there might have been a better way of resolve of dealing with this issue at the start. And not coming into conflict, because most people really don't want to be in conflict. Even people in 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 cultures where argumentation is a conversational style, in my experience, it's a style. They don't like to be in active conflict, as mm. they def- you know. Some people do, but most people don't. They'd rather just have their argumentative conversations, but have it just be conversation rather than really, really, you know, battling with each other.
0: Yeah. And uh, I understand you've written a book as well. It's called Clear Your Path Mm -hmm. uh, to Resolving Conflicts and Remove Your Barriers and Get a Better Future. Uh, Could you share a little bit about that book? I know you mentioned about the three barriers people put in their way and uh, how to recognize them.
1: Yeah, yeah, so um, if anybody wants it, I can give you the URL for it. It is a short book and a quick read and with, with practical advice in it. But I found over uh, time as a mediator, I would observe patterns in how people how people made life their lives more difficult. For instance, I noticed in especially a lot of consultants and solopreneurs uh, Ways that they are unwisely generous with their clients. So I have a talk about that. But the barriers I notice people putting in their way, for example, one of them is being stuck in their own perspective of what happened. When I ask people, like for instance, in a mediation, uh, one of my clients might hear new information. Something that they might have known or could have known three months ago or six months ago but didn't get the information And I say, well, suppose you'd gotten that information at the time, and you didn't have these three, six months, or whatever, to build up your resentment based on a misunderstanding. How would you feel? And most of the time, people would say, "Oh, I guess there won't be a problem. There's no problem after all if I'd known that at the time." So if I can get people to think about what if you'd known it at the time, another way to to, for people to be willing to accept different information is to imagine not that it's this person you're in a dispute with who's telling it to you. But imagine for example that it's a friend of yours because we tend to trust our friends right mm. not somebody we're not somebody we don't know that we're in conflict well so one barrier i see is is not being willing to change your perspective a big one is letting the past influence the present so i talked about those two men the founder of that nonprofit and the former board member that huge conflict in their past they never resolved and I had to find some way to have them think about just the particular conflict they were seeing me about as a way of, uh, Uh, Sort of unburdening themselves for a moment or two from the past so they could resolve the current one. So letting the past get in your way. If you find yourself constantly rehashing the past, if you find yourself thinking, well, I'll get a sort of resolution to this thing that will resolve what I should have gotten in the past dispute, those are signs that you're letting the past get in your way. And the best way, to well, a way to think about that is to think, suppose it was a friend of yours who's having a, that same conflict with another friend. In other words, they don't have the past that's weighing on you. What would you advise them to do? Um, so, uh, let's see, what have I said so far? Uh, being stuck in your own perspective, letting the past uh, be a burden for you. And for the moment, I am blanking on the third one. Oh my God!
0: It's my own book, <laughs> and we'll, we'll come back to it when you yeah. uh, when it comes to you. But so, uh, so I'm curious about is uh, taking a walk down the memory lane. Uh, I know you've traveled uh, to many places now. You've uh, uh, looking at your bio that you've lived in Chicago, Atlanta, Baltimore. So, my question to you is: What is your favorite place to travel? And uh, what about this place uh, you value so much?
1: Oh, boy. Uh, Well, recently, actually, what I've been doing is I've been going on uh, camping vacations where I have no plan but just travel as my fancy takes me. I did that twice last summer, and I'm going to try to do it again this summer. And that was a lot of fun. But if you're talking about a particular destination, I haven't been in a while, but I like to visit New York because uh, New York, Manhattan particularly, has just amazing, amazing theater in it. A couple times my husband went, and we spent a week there. He did street photography, and I went to see as many plays as I could cram into a week. Uh, So that, I really like New York theater. There's good theaters in Seattle, and there's excellent theater in New York. So that's one place I do like to visit. I would like, actually, to go back to London Mm. at some point. I... uh, It's been years since I've been, but it would be fun to see. It'd be fun to see that again.
0: Yeah, that's so great. And actually uh, I just, uh, I was in London not too long ago, uh, like six weeks ago, almost Uh, I was in Europe for a quick vacation and uh, yeah, just had a great time. But I, I know exactly what you mean by New York because when we uh, when I lived in the Midwest, uh, we would take these trips to New York City uh, pretty much every other quarter uh, just to enjoy the food and the Manhattan uh, uh, mm-hmm. lifestyle. And uh, big, I'm also a big fan of the U.S. Open tennis. So we'd go and watch uh, Roger Federer play. And so it was really those uh, wonderful times uh, and memories from New York City. So another question uh, down the memory lane is uh, growing up, Louisa, whom did you idolize and were there any mentors growing up that you wanted to emulate or what fascinated you about them?
1: Oh boy, that's a good question. Well, um, I admired my parents very much. Uh, My dad for his entrepreneurship and his, uh, his drive. He One of the businesses he started was a mountaineering equipment business called Mountain Safety Research, uh, which I think people know as MSR nowadays. And REI still sells. The the brand continues. Most of the products have been developed beyond it because he sold it in 1980, I think. But he was always working, always trying to figure out practical solutions to problems. Uh, And my mom, I admire her for you know, for her artistry, her interest in art, and her interest in science. Did I have mentors when I, probably the first mentor I really had was my undergraduate advisor when I was at the University of Puget Sound, and I I really liked him. I uh, talked to him about life and as well as, you know, advising on what classes I should take next term and and that kind of thing, and where should I think about going to graduate school?
0: Great, excellent. And then uh, I know you uh, enjoy swimming and hiking. Are there any other hobbies or interests that uh, you are currently passionate about or you've been uh, engaging yourself into lately?
1: Uh, Well, writing, of course, and then also I like camping, and I recently went to REI and took a class in kayaking.
0: Oh wow, how was that? Yeah,
1: it was it, well it was it was overwhelming because it was a lot of material in just four hours, a lot of different strokes and this and that and the other. but a couple times going places I've rented a kayak and had fun just paddling around the water. I went to Green Lake once I think the day the night before the 4th of July
0: hmm
1: just had to paddle around. that was fun.
0: Excellent. So, uh, Luis, we're going to switch gears here. And uh, this is the next segment of our interview. And these are some of the questions that we have received from our audience. And I'm going to ask you the first question that's on this list. And that is, in your opinion, what stops people from achieving their full potential?
1: Gosh, I think the first thing that comes to mind is self-limitations now i i I do not believe that that everybody can make it equally in this country because so many things come down to how you were born you know who you are where you were born your race your gender and so forth but i also see a lot of people who are afraid who unconsciously will not be willing to own their value in the world they will not be the lack self-confidence and Yeah, people limit themselves, I think, by not being aware of what their true potential is. I wasn't aware of how curious I was about people. I mean, I knew I was, but I thought everybody was until I was working with a business coach. And she said, Louise, one thing about you is you are passionately curious about people. Most people are not. So sometimes it helps to have someone external to you to point out those things to you.
0: I totally agree. I think that's what a good coach does. I mean, they identify your blind spots and give you feedback that can be a game changer. Uh, The next question I have for you is if uh, what is the biggest lesson or insight that you've learned about life in general that you would like to share with our audience?
1: Oh, boy, Um, that I, I read a book recently called The Drunkard's Walk. And I unfortunately cannot pronounce the name of the author because I believe he's from Czechoslovakia and I don't want to butcher his name. But I think one thing that's true of Americans in particular, and you probably have a better perspective on this than I do, is that Americans believe so strongly in individual ability and individual opportunity that we tend to overlook how many connections we make and how much people help us and how we help other people people i went to the there was a the last conference that was in the united uh, that it was in seattle toastmasters conflict actually up in linwood maybe in any case a man gave a talk about all these great things he'd done by himself and i thought oh my dear that's that's the quintessential american story that we rise or fall by our individual efforts and it's just not true people help us we help people we make connections and sometimes Chance happens, you know. I, I have a friend who suddenly developed a debilitating vestibular disorder. Well, that has held her back. She's fine now. Well, she's not fine, but she's certainly much better. But uh, uh, yeah, it's it's not just individual effort. It's the connections we make, and sometimes you deal with stuff that happens to you totally by chance.
0: Yeah, and uh, I couldn't agree more. I think. Uh you know, the results that we produce uh, is often a direct contribution of the people that have uh, shown up in our lives. And, uh, you know, have uh, have given us the feedback or have just uh, been at the right uh, time at the right place and, you know, helped us uh, gain some new perspectives. And uh, yeah,
1: or introduced us to a friend of theirs who then introduced them to somebody who got them a job or was a good client or gave them a useful life lesson, you know. Yeah, it's all, yeah.
0: it's Yeah, yeah it's absolutely leads to a lot of opportunities. So um, the other question is, uh, in your opinion, having resolved so many disputes and having been a mediator for so long... What step, small step or actions that people can start taking uh, that are practical in nature towards creating peace on planet Earth? If somebody had to ask you that question, one or two uh, simple things that they can start doing uh, on a daily basis that would allow for peace uh, to be given a chance. Ah, good question. So one
1: thing I would say is similar to my previous answer when I talked about try to develop as much awareness as you can of other cultures and become comfortable around people who are unlike you. I grew up in West Seattle when it was almost completely white. And it was the kind of place where when a Chinese friend of mine moved in with their family in 1973, they had to get an unlisted phone number because they got so many nasty calls from people who didn't want a Chinese family on the block. Uh, so, you know, try to be around as many different kinds of people and try to see the humanity in everybody. I used to, I'm sorry to say, but I used to be judgmental of the people who go to a methadone clinic that's not far from where I live. But being a mediator has brought me into contact with people from a lot of different walks of life, socioeconomic statuses, as well as race, culture, religion, cetera. And I have learned to see the humanity. So now, when I pass by there, if I catch the eye, I might say, "Hey," or "Good morning," or something like that. That the more you can develop, you can develop the ability to see that people who are different from you, either by social class, circumstance, country of origin, color of their skin, are people they have souls they have needs they have wants they have hopes and fears just like you do and i'm not trying to be all kumbaya and say oh we are all more alike than we are different well we are alike there are genuine cultural differences and in the united states some differences there people don't want to look at like the difference experiences between white people and african americans in this country but underneath it all the more humanity you can see in other people, rather than looking down on somebody because they're poor and dealing with addiction or sneering at somebody because they're rich and you think they're snobs. You know, try to see the humanity in everybody.
0: Yeah, trying to see the humanity in everybody. Yeah, I know that's so great. Now, the other question I have for you is uh, what is the best book that you've read or you've gifted or re gifted or reread over the years? Is there anything that you could recommend for our audience?
1: Do you mean having to do with mediation?
0: Oh, generally, like what's your, uh, what's some of the best books that you have that has made a big difference for you or in general that you uh, normally gifted to others?
1: Ah, okay. Well, actually, it's funny. The, the first thing that came to mind when you asked that was the second time I was in New York in 2011. I saw a play that changed my life because it gave me more ideas about what plays could be. I was a playwright for a number of years. I could give you the script but I can't give you the performance <laughs> But you know the, one of the books I like right now is uh, Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell and I also like The Bone Clocks it, it, he, the man is an amazing writer and he has an amazing imagination and every time I read those books there's, there's more to them and I wish I could I could write like that and I think Another thing I would suggest is, especially for people who are white, or would identify as white or Caucasian or European-American or whatever, to read anything by Robin DiAngelo. She was at the University of Washington. I'm not sure she still is. But to try to understand the experience of whiteness in this country, because whiteness is pretty much... Typically invisible. Most white people in America won't say I'm white. They'll say like, oh, I'm, I'm German and Dutch and French, you know. Whereas people who are African American or Asian will say I am Asian or African American or whatever. Uh, so yeah. So there's a couple fiction books. I also like a lot of Laurie King's work. Uh, she's a mystery writer. And then things by Robin D'Angelo.
0: Yeah. Okay, great. And uh, we'll include all of that in our show notes for the benefits of our audience. And uh, another question uh, before uh, we get to our next rapid fire round is uh, and this is a hypothetical situation, uh, Louise. It's like, let's say we had a time machine, and if you could go back in time and talk to your young self, like let's say your 25 year old self, what advice would you give her?
1: Oh, boy. Well, there are some things particular to me that I would talk about or uh, talked about to her. <clears throat> First of all, I would give her a great big comforting hug. <laughs> and then I would say that there are, I would say to my younger self, Louise younger self, there are two things you inherited from your parents which are not serving you well. Uh, one is called narcissistic injury, which is the phenomenon where People experience others' actions as wounding to their self-esteem, even if those actions aren't directed towards them. I would say learn how to not experience other people's actions as narcissistic injuries or as wounding to your sense of self-esteem. And also learn about what are called boundary issues. Uh, Learn about where the functional and emotional boundary is between you and other people. So those are two practical things that I would tell myself at, at 25. Oh, I would also say, break up with that boyfriend. Oh, my God, do it now. <laughs> oh, Lord Almighty. I would say... You do not have to have a perfect topic for your master's thesis. Pick a good enough topic and just finish the damn thing.
0: <laughs> well, that's so great. Uh, so uh, we're going to move on to our next section. And this is a rapid fire round, uh, Luis. And this is basically where I ask you a bunch of questions. These are fun questions. It's the first question, that uh, first response that comes to your mind. Uh, you know, if you choose to elaborate on it, feel free to do so. But again, this is, uh, again, the rapid-fire run. So are you ready? I am ready. All right. So the first question is, who's your favorite rock star?
1: Rock star?
0: Hmm.
1: I don't have a favorite rock star. Um, God, maybe the Beatles.
0: Okay. Uh, whose brain would you like to pick?
1: Einstein's.
0: Hmm. If you could be successful in another profession, which would you choose?
1: If I could be a writer, if I could be a successful, brilliant writer like David Mitchell, I'd do it.
0: Mm. The next question is, if you could have witnessed one event in history, what would that be?
1: You know what I would like to event witness is the funeral, the open casket funeral for Emmett Till. I don't know if you know who he was, but... Um, It was a young man, African American man from Chicago visiting relatives in Atlanta, in Alabama. And something happened. He like whistled at a white woman. It's not clear. But the next night the white woman's uh, husband and I think stepbrother or half brother went and found young Emmett Till. He was like 13 and they beat him and they tortured him and finally killed him. And When his body was discovered, weighted with an engine block in a nearby river, his mother insisted on an open casket funeral or memorial in in Chicago, and the scores of African Americans from Chicago who went by and saw what had been done to that young man, that was one of the one of the turning points in the civil rights movement in the United States. There were many, but that was one. I think I would like to go be witness to that kind of change in this country.
0: Mm. And then uh, one other question is, if you could have any message of your choice on a billboard, what would that be?
1: (laughs) Find the humanity in each other. Find Love each other and find the humanity in each
0: other. I like that. Find the love and find the humanity in each other. Excellent. And uh, so this is the final section. Uh, with that, we'll uh, wrap it up. And then we move on to the last section of the interview. And so I have a uh, few other questions. So the first question I have for you, uh, Luis, is what is your current personal passion project and what are you looking forward to in the next six months or a year?
1: Oh, my current passion
0: project. Well, business project or anything that you're working Business
1: Well, what I, I am I am working on transitioning from being a mediator to being a scrum master. And for those of you who are audience who wouldn't know about it, a scrum master is a facilitator and a coach for scrum teams. Scrum teams are self organizing teams of people that learn how to forecast themselves, how to examine their own work, how to continuously prove what they do. They work for short segments of time called a sprint. can be typically a week to a month. It's used a lot in software development, but it's not limited to it. I've used it in my own life, and it's fascinating. And I I would really like to get a job as a scrum master to take everything I've learned as a mediator about people and apply it to helping teams succeed. One thing about mediation is I tend to see my clients maybe once, twice is usually all it takes. And I would like to work with a team over time and see them develop in their abilities over time.
0: Hmm. Uh, that's so great. And then uh, how can people reach you? Yeah. What's the best way to get hold of you in order to contact you?
1: Yeah, probably the best way right now is uh, my Gmail account, and that's Seattle, the, the name of the city, louise which is l-o-u-i-s-e so it's seattle louise all one word at gmail
0: okay and then you have the website which is uh, yeah i have
1: i have a couple different websites so my business website is humaninterop.com where interop is short for interoperability and then I also have a website with my, I'm writing a memoir about my life as a white woman married to an African-American man. And that's White Memoir, all one word, dot com.
0: Hmm. Great. And we'll include that in our show notes. Uh, next. The next question I have is, uh, what are three things you're grateful for in life today?
1: Uh, my husband. My husband and his love. And his support. We recently celebrated fifteen years of marriage.
0: Oh, congratulations!
1: Thank you. You know, and for someone who I I'd never fallen in love before, I fell in love with my husband, and uh, I'm just grateful. To, it's amazing to love and be loved by someone over 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 years. Um, so, what, what was your question again?
0: So, like three things you're grateful.
1: Oh, for. Oh, three things. Uh, my husband um, living in Seattle. Uh, because it, as much as I am coming to hate the traffic and the crowdedness, I still uh, I still like Seattle. And I am grateful for the work of various I'll see how to put that. Various people who've helped me in, in the past couple of years, support, encouragement, that kind of thing.
0: Mm. yeah that, that's so great so uh, said, i want to acknowledge you for a few things here one is uh, for really taking a stand uh, for humanity uh, by choosing a profession like like a, such a noble profession like mediation and you know resolving conflict because in my point of view resolving conflict is the step towards creating global peace and i think Uh, having done that over so many years as a mediator and now with your new project of bringing it to becoming a scrum master, you're continuing continuing on this journey and you're really becoming the, you know, making your, leaving an imprint on society with uh, with your contribution of bringing peace to the world. So I really want to thank you for that. And secondly, uh, it is amazing that, uh, you know, you have uh really taken on uh, the the thing about that uh, traveling and helping people understand that you know having people having surrounding yourself from different cultures and people from different kind of backgrounds can really enable uh, to raise our awareness and i think that message is so important and i think uh, your Contribution towards that is also uh, really uh, very beneficial for society. So thank you for all that, and I really, really appreciate uh, you uh, taking the time uh, to be on the show and sharing your insights and uh, wisdom.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm glad you asked, and and I've enjoyed our conversation.
0: Yeah, and is there anything else before? And there's one other final question, and that's how we wrap our interview. But before I get to that, is there anything else that I may not have asked and you would like to share?
1: Gosh, the only other thing I can think of is that uh, another thing I do in the world is especially like on Facebook or in conversation, if I see someone – a white person like myself who's not yet aware of some subtleties or, or nuances or facts of racial relationships in this country, I will try to find a way to say something kindly and informative to that person to help them understand and make their journey perhaps easier than mine was.
0: Great. Right. And then, so the final question, Louis is why do you think people should listen to Wisdom of Friends?
1: Oh, well, because if the interviews are anything like as brilliant and entertaining as mine is, they'll all be brilliant and entertaining.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. Great. Again, uh, thank you so much for your time and candid answers. And I truly valued our uh, conversation And with that, for those of us listening, we'll wrap it up. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with With Cal Aras. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, theglobalcontribution.com. To your friends and colleagues, be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous episodes. This has been a 7 Symphonies production. Join us next time for another edition of the Wisdom of Friends.